0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 93.
1: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux.
0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 93 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio back again. Yep. Number 93. We're getting closer, but we're not there yet. So I'm just going to get into it because we have a lot of stuff to talk about. So um, who's on today? Well, let's talk about that. That's uh, David Barbie. He's an American musician and producer and engineer from uh, Athens, Georgia. Uh, he happens to be the director of the music business certificate program at the University of Georgia, but he also happens to be uh, the owner of Chase Park Transduction, which is a studio in Athens, Georgia. Uh, He's also a former member of the band Sugar, uh, Mercyland, and Buzz Hungry. And he's produced pretty much every album by the band Drive-By Truckers, and he's also worked as a producer and engineer with Sunvolt. He's had a long history in music. His parents were uh, lifelong musicians, and uh, he's got grown kids now who work for him, so the lineage of music... And recording really uh, runs through the Barbie family. So excited to have David on. We've been trying for, I would say, three or four weeks now. Yeah, took a while, but we figured it out. We had a couple bumps in the road with technology uh, connecting us, but we finally connected. So David Barbie coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So there's that. Okay, so next up, what else do I have to tell you? Right, okay, so this, uh, if you're listening to this episode and it is... Uh, and you're listening to it fresh off the presses, this is the week of the 141st AES show in Los Angeles. So the show starts on the 29th, and I will be there throughout the entirety of it. Anyhow, so on Saturday, October 1st, If you're listening now and you are within earshot of a computer with some audio, or you're at the AES show, I will be over at the Focal booth. That is booth number 813, interviewing Mr. Brad Wood, known for his work with Liz Fair, Smashing Pumpkins, and Placebo, to name a few. And so Brad and I will be speaking from uh, 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock, just an hour conversation. And if you are unable to go to the AES show, no problem. We'll be streaming it live the address to get to the stream, and that stream looks like it's provided to us from our friends over at PureMix. So that would be, of course, www.puremix.live. If you type that into the URL section of the browser, you should be able to get there and you can tune in. Of course, consider the time difference no matter where you're at. That's a no-brainer. So there it is. Yeah. So AES and um, No updates yet on our 100th show party that I haven't already mentioned. I did mention it's going to be on November 18th at 25th Street Studios in Oakland, California. And we will have two guests. Not going to tell you who they are just yet. I've confirmed one. I want to confirm the second one, and then I'll tell you all about it. We're going to do a live stream and a live interview in front of an audience, and then we're going to do a party afterwards. If you're in the Bay Area, you're welcome to come to the party. The streaming part of it, or the show part of it, I should say, that's going to be an invite-only thing. So, sorry, just we can't have everybody. We just don't have the room. So, we're going to sit down invites for that. That'll be streamed. We're going to be giving away some prizes. Uh, the idea, hopefully, is to give away some prizes locally for those that are there. And you have to be in attendance to win. If you're not in attendance and you're streaming over the Internet, and you're not in the Bay Area, we will give you an opportunity to win some prizes. So that's going to be cool. So there it is. Let's jump right into it. Uh, Let's waste no more time. Let's get right into it with Mr. David Barbie. Yes, David Barbie here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. I was just watching your TED Talk in Athens from 2014. Mm-hmm. I was enjoying it. I'm not all the way through it. So far, very interesting about growing up, going through the rabbit hole like Alice in Wonderland. Since we're on it, you know, you teach, so you, you're you exposed to a lot of uh, up-and-coming potential audio people. And so I'm curious about what your thoughts general thoughts are these days after doing that ted talk after you know teaching for mm-hmm. you know a, a number of years about the process of you know you talked about you made some great examples you talked about in athens guys in uh, drive by truckers widespread panic rem mm-hmm. doing essentially doing these crap jobs and in, including yourself filling cracks in in parking lots or or that kind of a thing making the transition eventually to get to the the job that you enjoy. Can you talk on that topic for a bit about what you say to your students these days?
1: Well, what I say to my students these days is, it just depends how bad you want to do something. Mm. That I feel like, I think this is especially true if you want to work in audio, because even though the student age population will find it hard that you and I are too young to have been part of this, but the truth is that... Forty years ago, if you wanted to be an engineer, you could, in any major city, go to a huge studio and get a job, a real honest-to-God job as a guy that cleaned up, swept the floors, and you would move from the broom pusher up to the second and then the first assistant and then a house engineer And then you're actually like working on real honest-to-God sessions. I mean, I have friends who did this at places like Sunset Sound in L.A. And that was their start. Now, of course, it's really not that. You've got to really roll the dice on yourself if you want to get into doing this. My advice to students who want to start a career in, I mean, in any kind of field in music, whether it is as a manager, a booking agent, or in our case, you know, as a recording engineer is this. You need to go for it immediately. If you want to start a career doing something cool, here's what you do. You move to the city where you want to live to do the cool thing without any sort of security, any guarantee, or any kind of job. If that city is Los Angeles or New York, the reason that you do this is because there are already 10 million other people there and someone else is going to do it if you don't. There's no shortage of other human beings there. The reason you do this when you're a young person is that at 22 – You've graduated college, if you're coming out of here at least, and you have zero children to support, most likely zero deadbeat spouses to report to support or report, <laughs> zero house payments to make. You know, you're probably selling your parents' insurance till you're 26. That is a true yeah. thanks Obama moment. And um, <laughs> here is the worst case scenario. Three years go by after you've done this, You've moved to Nashville to try and start your career as an engineer. And after three years, you are a bitter, abject failure, and you have nothing. This is not usually what happens. Okay, that happened. Now what? Where are you in life? Well, you're a 25-year-old. You've got a college degree. You have three years of real-world experience under your belt, and you've gotten some failure out of your system. Are you a person that could move forward in life and start a career and get some other kind of job? I would say you're an eminently hireable person. You're probably a better candidate for some kind of job than somebody that is, uh, has been timid their entire life. That's not what happens with most people. Most people go for it, and if they're smart and they're passionate and it's really what they want to do in life and they work hard at it, I think it works out. But that's the advice I give to students all the time. That's the advice I gave gave to my own adult children is, you pick what you want to do and go try and do it. And if it doesn't work, you're going to have to find something else. But... If you don't go for it, there's no. if you do go for it, there's no guarantees whatever it is you want to do is going to work. If you don't go for it, it is guaranteed that you will not succeed at
0: it. You can't w- win if you don't play.
1: Right. Must be present to win. My dad's advice to me, you know, my parents are both professional. My mom's passed away now, but my parents were both lifelong professional musicians. Nobody in my family has had a job outside of music since before World War II. And my dad's advice to me was to... Um, Never give myself anything to fall back on because I would fall back on it.
0: That's interesting. That's kind of a burn the bridge kind of mentality or, you know. Right. You know, sail to the island to attack and burn the boat. Right. Because you know you're staying there kind of a thing. Yeah. Interesting. I like your idea of uh, pushing forward and just setting up shop. And basically you're saying assume the role. You want to be a recording engineer? Be a recording engineer. Start start moving forward
1: you know how that's how i got into this you know it's like i moved to athens in 1981 to go to college um REM had just released their first single the b-52s had already come and gone moved to new york but we had pylon and love tractor and you know handful of the method actors you know a handful of other bands here and i was so into the music scene and there's all these other bands who are about my age who are a few years a couple of years younger than those guys who had started moving to athens going to college and starting bands and i wanted to record bands and I had the greatest learning platform in the world, which is a Fostex X15 four-track cassette recorder. It's all you need. Mic pre's console recorder, listening system, headphone jack, that is, all in one little box that cost $400 or $100 more than the student price of Pro Tools right now. And adjusted for, and let's put that in perspective for a second. Minimum wage in 1981 was $3.35 an hour, I believe. So that's about hundred and 20 or 30 hours of minimum, 130 hours of pre-tax minimum wage labor, really post-tax probably 160 hours of minimum wage labor, a month of working at Taco Bell to buy one of those things, whereas minimum wage now is $7.25 an hour. So basically, it's about a week and a half of minimum wage burrito wrapping labor in 2016 to buy Pro Tools, whereas it was a month of minimum wage labor to buy a four-track in 1981. This is my view of economics for everything, <laughs> is base it on the current minimum wage. So, But I'm serious about this. So I had a four-track, and I was recording bands. And I'd been recording my own bands in my basement from the time I was about 12 years old on a Roberts 330 tube quarter-inch four-track that had sound on sound. Like once I bounced a track, it is part of the other track now. So I really learned – about, you know, doing this, and then I had this four-track, and I decided I wanted to start working in studios with bands I knew. The band I was in went to a studio, and I thought it was really cool, and I acted like I knew what I was doing, because I'd grown up in studios with my parents. So, I sort of got to, quote-unquote, produce the session, you know, I was kind of the guy in the band who got to be wrong about things. So, I told other bands in Athens that I was a record producer, and that they should let me produce their... Recording and I would do this on my four track cassette recorder, and that's how I started doing it. And once I did that, I was one. And so then I started going to studios with bands and just said, Let me go to the studio with you. I'll produce your session. Now, in the 80s, when you go, a guy in his early 20s goes into the local recording studio, the engineer is not going to let the guy touch one piece of equipment, but that's fine. All I was doing was um, getting performances and getting sounds in the room. That is, I would tune drums. I would muffle or liven drums. I would adjust amps. I would tune guitars. I would detune guitars. I would, when the engineer wasn't looking, crank the amp on the guitar amp all the way up instead of leaving it where they had it because they were afraid it would blow something up. But I know if you listen to cool records, that think they sound sound cool wide open. That's right. I was serving in a true producer role. That is working with the artists, working with the songs, working with musical arrangements, and keeping an eye on the engineer. And in my case, what I was doing was being an adamant, outspoken opponent against too much treble and digital gated reverb, which were very popular, as you may recall, in the 80s. I was laughed at and criticized by older guys in studios because I was out of touch that I didn't want to use these things. And of course, in retrospect, I feel pretty good about this that I I feel like I was right. Uh, because my thing, I remember telling one somebody in the studio one day. And you know, I'm fresh out of college and this guy's probably in his 30s and I just said, "You know, that stuff's going to be shag carpet in 10 years. It's going to be <laughs> <laughs> an earth shoe or a pet rock or a farah haircut. It's going to be it's going to be the most dated thing in the world. It's going to be it's going to be a, a fringe jacket." And well, you're just behind the times, you know, these records you listen to. And of course, guess what? it's the most dated thing in the world. Shag carpet. But yeah, it is shag carpet. But so that's how I got into this. And then one of the guys I got an argument with who was an engineer is the, per- I mean, is the person that gave me an opportunity to be an engineer. By me telling people I was a producer and going into studios, I became one because I just decided, you know, a hundred years ago, somebody, you know, w- that somebody became a sheriff by just showing up in town and being the sheriff, and. There were as late as about 1900, there are instances in Major League Baseball of somebody who bought a ticket to that day's game winding up playing in the game. That's not how things work anymore. We live in a culture of professionalism, and I say this from a standpoint of someone who teaches college to people to become professionals. But these kind of programs didn't exist when I was in school, and so I decided if I just want to be it, I'm just going to be it. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to get kicked to the curb. And um, fortunately, the thing I wanted to be wasn't like a neurosurgeon or an astronaut <laughs> or something.
0: Oh, thank God.
1: Yeah. Anyway, and the, uh, John Keene, who is an engineer in Athens, he's a great engineer, and he does all the for panic records, and he's made records to R.E.M. I've actually been on a
0: panel with John Keene that I moderated at a tape op conference,
1: and I thought John was just fantastic. John Keene is uh, John Keen is the official business, as far as I'm concerned. He's John Keene. I would go to his studio and I would argue with him. And the argument that we got in that I think I went over there with, I'd go with a four track of a song that was, this is how I think the production of this song could be. And I was really, I would gotten pretty involved with four tracks and, you know, I had all kinds of creative tricks and I'd read that Beatles recording sessions book and um, really tried to kind of max out the potential of the four track. Plus at a relatively young age, I had a baby and then another one and then another one. And so I'm like a touring guy in a punk rock band in a van with like a wife and babies. And I, you know am like really scrambling and john um asked me he saw in the local paper that my band had broken up and asked me do you want to learn how to be an engineer because i had had this about a week before i'd been over at john's studio and again with the reverb on the drums and he said you know the re, you know something about how that helps the records have energy and i said what about a record like every picture tells a story or physical graffiti what about those and he was like oh, you mean like that? And I was like, yeah, I mean like that. I was like, your recording sounds great. Just let it happen. That's what I want. And it was my own band. (laughs) And and the recording he made for us was beautiful. It was great because he's an ace. But um, anyway, so about two weeks later, my band, you know, we broke up and John called me and said, hey, I saw on the paper your band broke up. And I was like, that's right. He said, do you want to learn to be an engineer? Now, I have a baby and another baby on the way and I'm in my mid-20s and I w- was aware that this year I would I'd be lucky if I earned $9,000 supporting a wife and two children, which even in those days is a little tight. Now we did it because we live in Athens and we own our own house and our house payment was $286 a month, which is a pretty sweet deal. Oh. It doesn't exist anymore, kids, but back then it did. So <laughs> anyway, so I was just like, Yes, because I was aware at the end of the night the band is paying, the producer is waiting, and the engineer makes some money. I was driving a delivery truck for a Kinko's copy shop at that time. And so what I did is I changed my work schedule from five eight-hour days to four 10-hour days and left Friday and Saturday open to work two 10-hour days at the studio. And between playing in bands and my crack-filling job that I put myself through college with, I've been working 50, 60, 70 hours a week a long time. You know, At this point in my life, I've been doing this a long time. So, I just said, yeah, I'll just work six, ten-hour days a week. And so, I went over to John's, and he started showing me stuff, and I was really into it, and When he showed me how to, his way of wrapping mic cables, I went home and practiced with a garden hose because I figured if I could wrap a garden hose, I could wrap a mic cable like nobody's business. I wanted the next time I went in there, I wanted to kick everybody's ass with how great I could wrap those cables. (laughs) Simple task, but I I, I like to be good at things. So I interned with John for three months and then I went to the recording workshop in Chillicothe, Ohio, which was a brilliant experience. Uh, Are you familiar with this place at all? No. Okay. It is different than your other highly advertised, glossy publication, big-name recording schools. And here's the difference. These places, who shall remain unnamed, number one, want you to go to recording school for several years, which is ridiculous. Two, they want to charge you $60,000, $80,000 or something to go to these places. Three, they accept federal student loan money, which means a lot of these popular, highly advertised recording schools are actually federal student loan mills in the same way that like the University of Phoenix and like the Georgia School of Bartending are. And if they people from those places see this podcast, I'm probably going to get a letter from a lawyer in a hurry. But I don't care. I just said that, and I believe that this is the truth. That anyway, the whole federal student loan thing. I'm not going to go off on that. But basically, I think they're selling people a bill of goods. It doesn't take three years to learn how to stick an SM57 in front of a guitar amp. It doesn't learn to tell. It doesn't. It, three. You don't need three years to realize. Uh, your G-string's a little out of tune there. A heavier drumstick would sound better on that snare. If you hit that splash cymbal one more time, I will personally walk out there and take it off of your kit. Or, no, 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 no. Please, please, please hit that cymbal harder. It sounds so good when you did that. You know, come on, give it to me. So, um, but the recording workshop is the greatest deal in the world. It is a crash course in recording. And when I went in the early 90s, it was seven weeks, including room and board. It's about $3,000. And you went to the recording workshop for eight to ten hours a day, five days a week. And all you learned about is how to record music in a recording studio. Mics, pre's, console operation, busing, tape machines at that time, this brand new thing called Sound Designer 2 that was going to lead to Pro Tools. Of Um, course. And then how to solder, how to troubleshoot, how to edit tape, um, session techniques, track sheets, session logs. I mean, uh, just really good basic nuts and bolts, but it's seven weeks. And if you already got a bent for this kind of thing, what it does is John said, look, if you'll go to this place and just learn signal flow, you can come back here and you can start working. As is frequently the case with me, I decided the best investment in the world is an investment in myself and my own work ethic because I love to do this. And I don't really like driving that delivery truck very much. So um, I went up there and lived in a trailer on the campus of the recording workshop uh, for three for about seven weeks Came back and John Keene gave me one day in the studio to show him that I knew what I was doing. And so um, Jack Logan, who had a real career um, releasing records in the 90s. Um, this is before he had his record deal, but he was a cool guy. I had a local band and I got them to come to the studio and recorded a song and showed John, I know how to do this. I know how to set up the mics. I know how to run the tape machine. And he gave me a key and alarm code and said, there you go. And another interesting part of my career right there, there, it was a good year, 1991, there was um, the first time that I was in the chair myself in a control room in a studio without somebody else in there is the first time in my life I ever had a feeling that I think I'm a natural. I think this is what I'm supposed to do with my life is this, which is a great feeling. I don't care what it is that you do in life, but... There's a lot of things I'm terrible at. In fact, most things involved in like being a human being, I think I'm probably not very good at. <laughs> but I love, love, love being in the recording studio. And a special area for me that especially in the days of analog tape, which I still use, but of course not that many people do anymore, that I had a real knack for right off the bat is punching in on an analog tape machine. And when I was up there at the recording workshop, I was... um the first time we were in the class, we were punching in on somebody uh, cutting a session. It was vocals and steel drum, which is a pretty tough thing to punch in on. And I could stick that thing like an Olympic gymnast sticking or landing. And to me, it was just like, well, it's easy. I don't see what the problem is. And the instructor after the class asked me and said, That's like a really hard thing to do. What's your trick? And I said, oh, you know, I'm just counting 30-second notes in my head and punching it in between. And the other thing I do is now, over time, I develop this thing of like watching people play and sort of impersonating them in my brain, either air guitaring with a hand or kind of singing along with them. And when their mouth changes shape, just bang, just go in and get it. Now, on the computer, it's easy to punch in. We can all do this. But on a tape machine, especially at 15 ips, there are a lot of people that freak out about punching, and there's all kinds of things, even in the realm of recording, of course, I'm terrible at. But that was a thing that made me feel like, I think I can do this. I have a specialized skill that's part of the general skill set of being an engineer. So I I came back from the recording workshop feeling really good about what I'd learned there, which in retrospect probably um, was just a basic stepping stone. But it was a huge leap forward in just my development and felt I came back with a lot of confidence. And John, I did that first day. John gave me a key, an alarm code. I recorded bands on the weekends there. I did that for a while, but about two months into doing that is when Bob Mould asked me if I wanted to play bass and what would become Sugar with him. And so, a year after being out of school of uh, the recording workshop, I've been recording bands constantly for a year, and now I was in this band that's like traveling all over the world and has you know stuff written about them in magazines and things, and so. You know, every article about the band would say the band's bass player David Barbie and recording engineer based in Athens, Georgia. It didn't say a guy who just got out of school a year ago. It says a recording engineer based in Athens, Georgia. So, I had just the dumbest luck in the world, Matt, of getting some like sort of cred pretty early on. Oh, I mean, I mean, Sugar was a great band. Well, thank you. A
0: very great band, and it 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 is a stroke of luck, but what an amazing amount of built-in PR.
1: Oh, absolutely. No two ways about it.
0: And, and it sets you up for, fu- for the future.
1: Oh, sure. Sure, sure.
0: I have a few family-oriented questions. Mm-hmm. So you, you're, you have a growing family. Right. In this time period, what did your wife say about you going off to this recording school and blowing three grand?
1: Um, well, I was really on the fence about going because my daughter was about one and a half, and I got, she's pregnant, and I'm really a little freaked out about it. And she just said, you got to go. You know, you've got to go do this. This is going to be good for you. The same thing as when um, I uh, when Bob asked me to be in sugar, she said, you'll kick yourself for the rest of your life if you don't go do that. And the kids need new shoes. <laughs> so so, so no, go she make was, some
0: money and right. come back.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, if daddy's a traveling salesman or something or a lawyer, you work long hours. And she just understood this is my career. It's what I do. And she was very supportive of it
0: strong and confident, yes. uh, partner in crime there.
1: Yes. Yes. Very much so. Which is
0: really a crucial correct uh, element to this. If, if you are a family person, your significant other has to stick by your side in that way. It's, that's right. amazing. And now your kids
1: are college age. Well, my daughter Annabelle's 27. She's married. She lives, she, they lived in Portland, Oregon for a while. And her husband, Adam of all the dumb luck was an engineer. And, uh, he now is, his specialty was more like sound design and video. So he, through a series of circumstances that I really had between nothing and very little to do with, is my um, IT and equipment guy at UGA. Oh, when your computer blew up the other day. He's my guy. He's your guy. My right. son, Winston, is 25. He is my, st- or he will be 25 in about a week. He's my studio manager. Um, and he, my youngest son, Henry is 23. He is a super busy engineer at Chase Park at my studio. Henry also is the monitor engineer for the drive by truckers right now. So he just left to go to Kansas city today. Winston's working on a project with somebody in California right now. And then we will all meet in Portland, Oregon next week. with went to drive by truckers record is released and Henry's been monitors. It's my birthday and Winston's birthday is the next day. And so we're going to, um, be involved in the production of a full album broadcast for npr of the truckers record the day it's released and then uh we'll all get to hang out together on my birthday which is pretty nice so my everybody's in the business it's like my kids two of my kids work for me which is uh really super great
0: and that's great just the lineage of your parents now you and your kids i love that that's fantastic Uh, so the studio is chase park transduction right correct Okay, and you've had that for a long time.
1: Since 1997. So my history is I freelanced. I worked out of John's starting in 91. And by late 91, it became apparent to me, I feel good about this. The bands I record with are happy. I hate working. at. I mean, the people at Kinko's are nice people, but come on, I don't want to drive that truck anymore. I think if I had access to more studio time, I could do this as my job. So I started freelancing, but basing myself out of John's Keene studio. And there was about half a dozen little studios in Athens. And so I started working in all the other studios in Athens. And the way I did this is I went to the studios and said, let me work in your place. We'll charge whatever your normal rate is. You pay me a third. And you keep the rest. And most people were really into this and because they bought into the concept that, look, I've got the bands and I don't have a place to record them. And because John, John was very busy five days a week, he just wanted somebody to work on the weekends. And it's like, man, I'll work on the weekends in your place, but I can't not feed my family because I don't want to work the other days. And I'm a little tired of the whole truck driving thing. So um, I worked in all the other studios in Athens because they realized it was a good deal for them. I was filling their empty studio time. Everybody won. They made money off of me bringing bands to their studio that weren't going to come there. Um, I got to have an honest-to-God career recording. I developed my skills because I was doing this all the time, and I developed two other things that I don't think I realized I was doing at the time. Number one, I was learning how to walk into any studio anywhere because I expanded first from Athens and then into Atlanta and then beyond that. And then I spot bought like a little gear where I could go and like freelance and record bands, you know, in their garage or whatever with like a DA88 and a few mics. But, um, so what I was doing was number one, I was learning every single piece of equipment you could ever encounter in a studio. Whatever kind of tape machine that you have in your studio that has been manufactured since about 1965, I know how to align it because I've done this before. Got to the point where after a few years of this, I I mean, because I was freelancer, but I wasn't working on month-long projects at the Hit Factory. I was... Okay, I'm at Full Moon in Watkinsville for two days. I'm coming back to John for the weekend for two days. I'm taking Monday off, and then Tuesday and Wednesday, I'm going to Atlanta down to Boston. Thursday, I'm going to Columbia, South Carolina record a band in some guy's basement. Friday and Saturday, John's out of town. I'm going to come back and mix it over there. I mean, I was going place to place to place to place to place, which was great. It was hard, but what I did was I got to the point where I could walk in or felt like I could walk in any studio anywhere in the world, and if there was a remotely knowledgeable person who knew how the patch bay worked, I could, a console became a console, became a console, all the same to me. Tape machine, all the same. Well, we use this here. I got it. How do you punch in on it? Well, how do these buses work on this console? Where are these mic pre's routed? Where do the drums sound good? What corner of the room do you like to put the drums in? And so I developed where the equipment just became a conduit, and it didn't matter. Yay, it's a Neve. That's a stroke of luck. It's a Mackie. That's fine. It's a Tascam uh, M3500. We'll make it work. We'll patch as little, through the, use as little of the console as we can. It's a Quad 8 Pacifica. What, it doesn't matter. It's all <laughs> the same. Well, we've got an m you know, uh, and you develop these other coping skills because you have to deal with other places maintenance issues every day. So one time I was working in a studio in Atlanta and the Studer 827, we were not able to punch out on it, which is a bit of a problem. It's like the Hotel California. You can punch in anytime you like, but you can never leave. So what I, you had to hit stop. <laughs> so what I did— It's like not having brakes on a car. Right. So um, what I did is— uh, And I picked this trick up from a guy named Ron Christopher. who used to be an engineer who did, like, a lot of gospel records in Atlanta. And what I did is I figured out where I wanted to punch out, marked it on the piece of tape with a China marker, spliced in a nice long piece of two-inch white leader tape, recorded up till there— Hit stop. Took the edit out. Put it back together. Once I was pretty sure the guy had played it right, and then you can't tell. But you learn how to do this stuff because you have to. It's two o'clock in the morning. You're in a strange Holy studio. Holy crap! <laughs> wow that that's a pain in the ass.
0: I mean, it's almost harder to cope with the different maintenance, lack of maintenance, or or proper maintenance in studio to studio than it is to you know, acclimate yourself to the different pieces of gear.
1: Oh, absolutely. The d- sound of rooms is difficult enough. Different equipment, different enough. Different standards of maintenance, very different. But what happens is after a while, it, within reason, unless it's like everything in this place is broken. I mean, there's a couple places that I had to go to a band afterwards and say, look, I know you guys like the vibe of this place. What you don't realize is I've been coming in two hours early and two hours, l- stay in two hours late every day just to make stuff work. And... Life is short. We've got to find a better way to do this. But typically, that was that's a rare instance. What would typically happen with me is um, after a while, you just sort of begin to feel like you're the fastest gun in the West and then no problem is a problem. And that imbues a lot of confidence to your artists, too, that whenever you go in someplace, it's like, well, we got to deal with this and this and this. And it's like, fine. Well, this is going to be a hassle. Are you going to lose a finger? Are you going to get diphtheria? Is the economy going to collapse? Is a child going to die somewhere? Or a puppy going to drown? It's like none of these things are going to happen, and none of it matters. You know what? The send doesn't work on channel 30. How about we patch it into 29? We're already using 29. What if we bust those things together and do, oh, okay, there's always a way. So I learned amazing troubleshooting and personal coping skills and keeping the session cool. If your reaction to problems in a session is, okay, guys, we have a problem, it's just like, okay, you've already lost. If instead it's like, hey, dudes, um, I need about five minutes to fix something. I think it's going to make everything run a lot smoother. How about you guys um, run, maybe grab a snack or something like that, get a cup of coffee and give me about five minutes. I'll get it going for you. Is it a problem? Nah, it's not going to be a problem at all. And there's plenty of times in the back of my brain, it's like, oh my God, this is an incredibly serious problem. But, you know... You don't tell somebody, you, you know, if you're the only person in the boat that has any chance of avoiding the iceberg, there's no point telling anybody else you're about to hit one. Either you're going to miss it or you're going to hit it, so you may as well try your best to miss it, because if you miss it, everything's cool, and if you hit it, it doesn't matter anyway because you're going to hit the iceberg. Maybe the best thing that illustrates that is accidentally, when I was in my very early stages of my career at John Keynes, I was doing a session that was produced by um, I guess if he ever hears this, he'll just learn about this. But my good friend, uh, Mike Mills, he's the bass player in R.E.M., he's a wonderful guy, he's a very creative guy, and he's great to have as a producer on indie sessions because he's not only, he's in a popular band, it's not that. He's a very musical guy, he plays a lot of instruments, great ear for song arrangement and harmonies and stuff. So for young bands, brilliant, brilliant producer. So I was engineering a session for him, and we did the take, and he said, hey, we need to punch in a couple of bass notes there. David, can you get that? I was like, yeah, no problem, because I'm already very confident in my punching-in skills. It is always a mistake the moment that you think you've got life figured out no matter what it is and you forget to check a detail. Typically, you'll have uh, one foot on the threshold of the future and one foot squarely on a banana peel. And frequently for me, I step right down on top of the banana peel. So, um, I did punch in. But unfortunately, I had left all 24 tracks on the tape machine (laughs) on. so it's <laughs> everybody What's in on? the room comes to a stop, stop and looks at me like in this panic look and without oh. even thinking about it I turned around and said hey my bad I just accidentally punched in over everything how about you guys just go in there and play along with the whole song and let me just punch a whole band in and we'll just fix it up and uh, they're like oh can you do that I was like "Yes, yeah, no problem and Mike said, cool, hey, I got to return a call. Can you just take care of that while I go outside? I was like, yeah, no problem at all. And so the band, I, said, I told the band, like, it might take a couple of t- takes to time it up. But yeah, don't sweat it. It's cool. Of course, as soon as they're out of sight, it's just like, oh, shit, what have I done? So, but honestly, my thought process was, I give them the old, guys, I'm really sorry. I'm panicked and I've lost them. I've lost confidence and they're going to lose confidence in me. Very bad. So my choice is be completely confident about it and either it works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I mean, because if I can't punch in, like if I say I can't punch in a whole band, what am I going to have to do? I'm going to have to go back and have them do the whole take again. If I punch it in and I screw it up and I can't fix it, I'm going to have to have them go back to the beginning and do it again. Therefore, same as the old roll on the dice on life, if I go for it, I might get it right. If I go for it and I mess it up, it's the exact same result as not going for it. Therefore, that math equation would lead one to the belief that you should just go for it. So, I went for it, and by the grace of God, this drummer was so consistent and such great time. The second time they did it, I stuck it. They came in. Nobody ever said another word about it, and it was totally perfect. And I've never admitted this in public until right now, but that's the (sighs) honest-to-God truth. That's a
0: scoop. Wow. Wow. That's a victory (laughs) of victories right there.
1: But then I also realized, because I've been told when I started working in studios, here are the things you can punch in on, a vocal between lines, a bass where there's a long pause. You can't punch in, you, know, you can't punch in all the stuff because it's too tight on analog tape. But after I did that, I realized I think they're wrong. I think they're timid. I think I can punch in on almost anything if I want to. And it's worth trying it out. So um it just yeah, but stuff like that. All this experience being in these studios dealing with problems, you realize I'm always gonna take the approach that I'm that my problem is never gonna be I can't do this. My approach is always going to be I can figure it out. It's not it's, it's not a problem for you let me figure it out and and we'll get it done.
0: Okay so I, I I've got to ask I sure. mean is
1: this is this a metaphor for
0: life and career as well It's my approach to everything. Just go for it. Whatever. Yeah.
1: I, mean. I keep a twenty-sided dice in my ashtray of my truck or in my backpack to solve all kinds of inconsequential problems, such when a, you're not playing Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, it's not Dungeons and Dragons. It's Stratomatic <laughs> Baseball, which is just really no better. <laughs> okay. But uh, it's uh, uh, this thing, this dice. We are. I use this in my class. We have a live recording class. Okay, two people want to mix the Deer Hunter show. Okay, well, only one of them is going to get to do it. So they could argue. I could have to pick between two kids or I put the 20 sided dice out there and say roll it low numbers mixing it it's better than cards because if you pick first and I pick second you got 52 chances and I only got 51 the dice never lie and over the course of your life a dice roll always evens out if you roll dice a million times the prob- mathematical probability always comes up the same so in um, a one single die you know it's not like you're trying one number's better than another. And so, or we're going down the highway. Hey, you hungry? I could eat. What do you want? I don't care. I'm not picky. doesn't matter to me. Roll. Low person picks. My family does this too. I do this on things all the time. So yeah, I'm just into going for it, moving forwards and not, um, I'm going to screw up. I'm going to screw things up all the time. I can't help it. I'm a human being. It happens. And I can either stop and worry about it, or I can just keep on moving forwards and try and get better. So what's your recovery method once you do screw up? Oh, publicly or internally or both? both? Okay. Publicly. It is immediate acceptance. I accept responsibility for everything all the time. I accept responsibility and blame even when I think somebody else is probably responsible because somebody's got to do it and the high road's always better in the long. The low road. It looks better, you make more friends and you get, develop a reputation. Hopefully, it's being a little more stand-up about things if you do it this way. People forgive you if you accept responsibility. People forgive you if you say, I'm sorry, I screwed up, I owe you one, I'm going to get this right for you. And... That's how I always do it with everything. It's like, you know what? I totally missed that take, and we got to get this again. Um, There's going to be a caveat exception to that one, but we'll come back to that. (laughs) Um, But internally, I tell myself that stuff is fine. I'm going to make it right. It's going to be cool. But internally, I can get so deep inside my own head, I can twist myself into a knot, worrying about screwing things up. And then you know what? What I've started doing in the last few years is I'll think back on some terrible instance before of being a young single guy and some girl breaking your heart or losing something or getting in an argument with a friend or say, or whatever. You know These things that we in life regret. It's like, oh, if I had just put on the brakes a little quicker, I wouldn't have hit the mailbox. I don't think I've ever actually hit a mailbox before. No, I actually have hit a mailbox before now that I think about it. One mailbox. Okay. But, um, May but, that ma-
0: mailbox rest in peace. Yeah.
1: But, but you know, the kind of thing is just like, oh, I should have, why did I say that? Why didn't I say that? Why did I do it this way? I should have done it that way. I should have told them that mixed didn't sound right. I should, you know, I should have thought that before it came out of my mouth. I should have gone ahead and let the, whatever it is. Yeah. I can get inside my own head to a terrible degree. But ultimately, just as I always, I mean, I'm a forgiving person. I always, you don't want to forgive other people for things because there's no point in holding a grudge. The grudge. Holding a grudge only hurts the grudge holder. And you got to get over holding a grudge against yourself. So, to the rest of the world, I'm like, man, I messed it up. I'm sorry. I will make it right. And people's reaction to that is always uniformly positive. Only like totally like psycho passive aggressive people are just like, you know, <laughs> hold it against it. What are you going to do about them? You know, there's, uh, that's, that, that's part of life. So, yeah, my thing is take responsibility and make it right.
0: All right, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Mr. David Barbie. but we're going to take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica for a bit. As this show is out this week, I am at the 141st AES show uh, in Los Angeles, and as I am going to be doing an interview there at the Focal booth, I'm also going around the show floor interviewing others. Uh, just randomly just catching conversations. So I needed to get set up with a couple mics to do that. And I talked to my friends over at Audio Technica and they recommended for what I was doing and what my needs were uh, that I get a hold of the BP-4001. So I got a couple BP-4001s and the BP, as the name would imply, of course, tells you that it comes from the same family as the BP-40, which I'm talking to you on right now. So, it's really geared for those who are in broadcast and remote news gathering, uh, who do on-location interviews, electronic news gathering, EFP, and sports applications. And it's got an extended handle that accommodates microphone flags, which is perfect in that environment. So, if you're in the whole broadcast area, you might want to check these out. You know, they're designed to provide isolation from handling noise. And the microphone is super well-built, really rugged. comes with a foam windscreen, a vinyl carrying case, protective pouch, Actually, it's available in an omnidirectional polar pattern as well, uh, which that would be the BP four thousand two. Retail price on the four thousand one is one seventy nine. Uh, so, of course, do your shopping around, do your do your due diligence there. So, if you see me on the floor at AES, I will have the BP four thousand one with me. So, if I'm not in the middle of an interview, come on over and say hello, introduce yourself. Would love to uh, talk to WCA fans. So, there it is. Let's get back into it with David Barbie here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to talk a little bit about Chase Park Transduction a a bit. What are the things that you've done to keep it a success, keep it afloat financially, and make it a popular place to go?
1: Well, primarily, I think that the biggest thing for us is that we work, and I tell my interns and my engineers and everybody this, we serve the artist's muse. That's it. We work for them. They're here to make cool music. They're here to make their great art. We are part of that. Um, Whatever someone needs, we do. Um, my th- rule is the answer is never know. We're going to figure it out how to do this. You want to treat people very well. You want to be a good host. You want to be polite. You want to be accommodating. Two, you want to communicate clearly with people about everything in advance. One of the things that was that has proved to be successful for me is adopting what I refer to as the sort of benevolent tell-don't-ask policy about some things, such as hours worked, and how much things cost these are things as a young engineer that a lot of people are hesitant to discuss up front because they want to be cool but mm. it be- can lead to weirdness later on we have all been in sessions where we said we'd work a day well what's a day if you work at a bank it's eight hours if you work as an engineer and you didn't talk about it with somebody up front it's until the artist says they're done if you don't have a uh, gumption to set something up in advance. So what I would always do is set a window, which I did because I had children and I needed to make time for my family. These two things are very interrelated to me and would say, all right, these are my hours, which are, when I had babies, it was like, I like to work 10 to six. And the reason I set these shorter hours was at six o'clock, everybody knows that's the time we agreed we're going to stop. But what I'm doing is leaving myself an opening to extend it and be cool. If I say, I want to work, this is how much it costs for me and I'm going to work for eight hours a day. And at the end of those eight hours, I mean, I'm not going to cut it off on somebody anyway. They're in the middle of getting something done. We can spill over a little bit or it can be if I'm having a good time and I like the session, I like the people and I would think this is something cool we're doing. If I say, hey, you know what guys, things are going great. Why don't we keep going for a little bit? Everybody's happy. You're champ. If you leave things open ended and you want to stop it and you don't have an exit strategy, how you're going to stop it? You have to have these awkward moments with people. Well, this is learned from experience, you know. I mean, I used to constantly and still do on occasion. If I'm feeling it and then what's required, work twelve, fifteen, twenty hours a day. We've all done this, and but I realized number one. I was not working effectively, working a series of 15 and 16-hour days. You get tired. You make bad decisions. You can't hear. People get cranky. The bands aren't as good if they're not fresh. But, so I would I set limits on time that I then regularly extend. That way, I'm being gracious with people, but if things aren't going right, things are weird, you can tell they're burned out and they desperately need somebody to tell them they need to take a break from this, or somebody has gotten wasted and is difficult to deal with, then you have an exit strategy in advance. So I set things up to gives me an opportunity to be gracious and generous with people in terms of time, um, in terms of money, and in terms of, hey, you know, we were wondering, do you have a different kind of headphones? Do you have a amp AB splitter box for amps? Do you have something that does this? And I'm not going to out and spend a million dollars for somebody, but there's plenty of times where somebody's just wanted something and I've realized this would be a value to the studio. I'm going to buy this and just buy and the artist. And they're just like, man, you just bought that. I was like, yeah, well, you said you could use it and I'll use it. It'll be helpful to our session. So being aware that, um, be responsive to your clients. You, I mean, they're paying money to be there. You will make more money by having more business and you will get more business by being gracious to people and treating them like stars. Um, treating them like great artists because in everybody's mind, that's what they want to be. And the other thing is that at the indie level, I'm painfully aware from my own experience that these are people who have saved up their money and taken off work to come to my studio. And one time I turned down an REM session for a day because I had a band booked and somebody said, one of their guys was like, can't you move the day? And I said, I could, but these guys are coming from out of town. They took off work to come here and – I can ask them if their days are flexible, but if their days are set, then I'm going to have to honor this because these are the same kind of guys that R.E.M. was at the very beginning. And I think, and the, and the band guys, of course, totally like respect that, you know, they, I mean, the R.E.M. guys, it's like that I would do that because they know that we're all trying to pay this forwards. So there's that. The thing about discussing money with people is to tell people how much things cost upfront and how you want to be paid, Right. meaning
0: it's like by you know check or credit card or are you talking about on like all at once because many times people come at me and go hey man
1: so uh (laughs) yeah i got to pay you over time which right which is there are and i used to be in this boat all the time which made me adopt this policy of telling people what it costs to work at chase park and so the very entry level when we opened the studio it was thirty dollars an hour including engineer all the time and then as we develop our careers. You know, there's those of us who can charge a few more bucks than that as we go. But we, to this day, since 1997, when we opened, we still always have at least one or two quality $30 an hour options that are young guys who started out like I did at John Keen's. We want people to give them an opportunity and we want people that are making cool music who are young people an opportunity to come do something at the studio that's good and it's going to sound better and we can develop a relationship with them that doesn't cost them any more than it would cost to go to their buddy's house and do it in his bedroom. So, what well, if in that situation a band calls and they want to record, and I'll say, okay, you should you should probably do this with Henry. He's into your kind of music, and he's a good engineer. This is what it costs: it costs thirty dollars an hour. Um, we want a fifty percent deposit upfront. We sell tape and hard drives um, at cost, rounded up to the next dollar. We're not going to say it was one thirty two eighty four. Come on, we'll just tell you this is you know cost me about one hundred thirty three bucks or whatever it was. We accept cash, checks, Visa, and Mastercard. We want to get paid in full at the end of the last booked day that you have. If you want to extend your session by more, we'll talk about it at that time. But the assumption is if you booked five days and then you need to come back and do three more days to mix later on, at the end of day five, payment is due, In full. This is another thing that gives us an opportunity to be flexible with people later on if it's a cool situation and you feel good about the people. But it also does give you an opportunity to keep people on task and on balance. And also for the studio to make money and stay open. It's hard to make money with a recording studio, it's hard to keep things open for a long time. The other thing is if you have to get money from some other source, such as, and this is all based on personal experience, your parents, your grandmother, your label, your manager, your wealthy uh, financier, whoever it is, I don't have a relationship with them. I have to get paid. So you're responsible for getting money from them. You're responsible for paying me. And that's how it works. And once I started talking to people about that, it was just like, okay, cool, got it. Hey, we're on a label. Can you build a label? Yeah, sure, no problem. Of course, we do that all the time. But there has been one instance where I told a person at a label who was really dragging their feet, I pointed out to them, Publix doesn't take indie cred and i have 3 children <laughs> what a, a label dragging their feet on paying you <laughs> unheard of Shocking. yeah so i'm very clear with people about money up front and i do understand hey we're on a label we got we'll invoice them and you and everything is fine and we do it the same way that other people do but there's been too many times in my life where i was waiting to get paid and um it can really add up a few hundred bucks and a few hundred bucks and a few hundred bucks and the next thing you know you're scraping to get by and you look in your pile of unpaid receipts and you've got you, people owe you like $15,000 because you're a nice guy and you want to be cool. That's what happened to me. And so learning to be direct with people upfront about money helped greatly. Learning to be direct with people about time, expectations upfront helped greatly. And one of the smartest things I ever did in my whole life is accepting credit cards. Because Bank of America loves people to owe them money, and I don't. So there's that on the business aspect of it. The other thing are simple things such as making sure everything works, being responsive to client needs. We need these instrumental mixes sent to our label next week. You got it. No problem. Dropbox has obviously made we WeTransfer, stuff like that. It's made this a very easy thing to do now. But it's just being responsive to people. And the other thing is, at this point in my career, I've done this for 30 years since I was recording bands on my four track, you know, more than that, really. And there's a lot. There's about half a dozen engineers that regularly work at Chase Park. And every single session, I go in and meet the bands and introduce myself, l- let them know, if you need anything, please reach out. Please ask me if there's anything I can do to make your experience here better, if I can make your session better, if there's something that you need or something that you'd like. Please let me know if I can be of help to you, you know, or just ask Drew or Henry to get in touch with me. And I'm, I'm more than happy to help you out. And I mean that. And it's pretty rare that somebody does. But when they do, of course, I mean that. And people are unbelievably appreciative of someone who's just simply a good host and comes in and takes the time to get to know the people. And, and I thank them for coming. I'm appreciative that the people will drive a long way or fly or whatever, or hell, come across town to come to Chase Park. There's a lot of other ways you could record. You could do it in your house on your laptop so and, and make a great record. And so um, I want to let them know how much I personally appreciate it. And if there's anything I can do to help them out, please ask and I'll do it. What's your financial philosophy in regards
0: to equipment acquisitions over time?
1: My financial philosophy of equipment purchases is basically the exact same was when I started buying equipment. Because I was a freelancer, I didn't have to buy a board and monitors and mic cables and stands. I was working in other people's studios, so I had zero overhead. Um, My favorite record at the time, my favorite sounding record, and really still one of my favorite sounding records ever made, is Slint Spiderland. And my friend Brian Paulson recorded that album. And I met Brian and I asked him about it. And he told me, oh man, I just, Brian and I are about the same age, had a very similar background. And he just bought a Summit TPA 200B mic pre. So that was my first piece of real equipment. He well, I'm going to get one of those. And so I developed this philosophy of only buying the very best. There are things that are disposable that we as engineers cannot avoid. And there's part of me that hates these things very much. Cables, stands, patch bays, computers, Oh, I just threw four wasted G-Max in the uh, Center for Hard to Recycle Materials a couple of days ago. And uh, yeah, original purchase price, oh, like $14,000. I paid $10 last week to throw them away. It hurts. (sighs) I'm not talking about those things. That's the price of doing business. Tires and brakes wear out. You have to buy them to drive. But... I didn't buy a bunch of cheap crap. I bought API and Neve mic prees, and tube mics and Cole's ribbon mics and uh, quality stuff that I would buy and hold, A, for the rest of my career, or B, things that had a chance to appreciate in value rather than depreciate. Digital technology is wonderful. It has a very short shelf life. A U67 still sounds pretty good when you hear one today. So there's that. The other side of this is my philosophy on purchasing equipment is I can I can owe as much money as I could pay off tomorrow. That is never ever get upside down on debt. If you need ten thousand bucks of stuff and you've got ten thousand bucks in the bank, you can spend your ten thousand bucks on your gear, or you could borrow ten thousand dollars because you're making more money off of this. It's an investment in your own future. And then as long as you understand. I didn't get any work this month. I'm broke. I need to pay this stuff off. I've got the 10,000 bucks and I'm paying it off. And if you do that over time, you have a sense of security about it and uh, you never overly panicked about it because it's um you can people can really get in a lot of trouble by getting too upside down, by being one extreme or the other, buying a bunch of cheap stuff that doesn't sound good. You don't make good recordings. You're not going to get good work. That's a problem. You got to invest. Number two, um, not realizing that when you that the bottom could fall out on you tomorrow. And so you might want to have, at least in the back of your mind, okay, this stuff is worth money. I mean, if you've got a Neve console, for example, I don't, but if you did, you can sell a Neve console and get your money back out of it, right? We know this. So it's just a matter of, it's just like any other business, I think. It's like you're smart about those kind of things. But I'm serious about the, the thing about keeping is having whatever you have in reserve, you can borrow that much. And you can use credit in that way. But the way I started out, you know, filling cracks in parking lots to put myself through college, working 60 hours a week so I could work four 10 hours a day, four 10 hour days at one job so I could work two 10 hour free days in a studio as an intern, and having a family to support made me extremely aware of risk and reward. That being said, I understand that owning a recording studio is like playing a high-stakes poker game where I've got a great big pile of chips in the middle of the table every day of my life, and I'm okay with that, as long as the pile of chips I've got out here is of the equal size.
0: (laughs) Uh, We're almost out of time, and I want to ask you two specific things. What do you call bullshit on right now that you see out in the world of recording? And I, I mean, sky's the limit. What do you see right now... Or what have you seen consistently over time that you always just shake your head and go, Psh, why is that like that?
1: It can oh, be anything. That's, okay, what it is to me is um, the philosophical confusion of perf- a pursuit of perfection and a pursuit of greatness. They're not the same thing. Because we can fix everything in Pro Tools. Sometimes I'll walk into a session and I'll hear some other engineer and artist working on something and it's perfect, but it's not great. They've ta- they've squeezed every fucking bit of life out of it by fixing everything that's the tiniest bit off, and the frequently this is a mistake of looking at the sound rather than listening to it. I don't know what the Mona Lisa sounds like. It doesn't matter to me. It. I don't know what you know. A. I don't know what lasagna sounds like. I know what it tastes like. I know what the Mona Lisa looks like, and they're great. Those are the correct senses to experience those things. Sound is in here, and. I think that that's the biggest single thing I see right now is because of the ability to fix so many things. Now I'm not a Luddite about Pro Tools. I love it. It's an amazing platform, and you can it opens so many creative windows. But I think that um, the pursuit of greatness is different than the pursuit of perfection. It, how do you get a good drum sound? I get a good drum sound by talking to the drummer. I get a good drum sound by pointing out that that fill comes in as part of the song where the guy has a really convoluted sentence, and it's, you can't hear the words anymore. I get a good drum sound by watching how much of the stick hangs out of the back of the guy's hand to as how and how that relates to the low-frequency content of a snare drum. You know what I'm getting at here is that I think that sure. technology has allowed us and continues to allow us to make wonderful, creative steps forward, but it can become a little bit of a prison for people where it makes records take way, way, way too long. Um, I made five records in 2015. Um, three of them were things that took several months that were – for things that had a budget and I worked on for a long time and I'm very proud of them and I love the records and they were all done in the computer to some degree frequently recorded on tape and then mixed out of the computer or something like that I did two other records one in four days and one in six and they were both done on one inch eight track because hey can we redo that guitar solo if we want to erase over the old one we can and it inspires people to greatness that is either you know what I can top that or "Eh, that's you know I think that's good I like it you can you are, you are free to make a decision and keep moving forwards, just like the Beatles or Jimi Hendrix or Miles Davis or John Coltrane or Patsy Cline or whoever. Pick it. So that's my answer: is confusing like for that. and for greatness. I,
0: li- I like that. Final question: Work life balance. How have you mm-hmm. managed to keep that mm-hmm. shit together over the years?
1: It's a ch- It was a great challenge for me, and the way that I did this is a little easier now because my kids are adults. And my patient wife has realized that I'm just rock and roll lifer and that's just never going to change. But with children, especially because I had them much sooner than most of my friends and that I always decided every decision I will make in my life will be based on what is in the best long-term interests of my children. Me going on tour with Sugar was not in my children's best short-term interest because I was gone, but it was in their best long-term interest that I developed my career and Just similarly, and Bob Mould was incredible about understanding my family situation. That's why we toured as little as we did because of that guy was so understanding of it. But I I really have my, stuck to my guns about this. Um, I also um, was, when I quit the band, it was because it was in my children's best long-term interest that I stop and that i be at home and work on my career as an engineer rather than be traveling so consistently anymore. Every day for years and years and years, my schedule was 11 to 10 with a two-hour dinner break in there, which was, I mean, I did the 10 to 6 and they're like babies, but that was just for a very brief period. For years and years and years, my posted schedule is 11 in the morning until 10 o'clock at night with a two-hour dinner break late in the afternoon. And the reason was, I want to see my children. I want to have a little family time. Can you take them to little league practice? Yeah, I coach. I'm still coaching little league. My kids are adults. I my my sons and I coached little league team they played on that the studio sponsors. My daughter has something a recital or something she's doing. Yeah, we're having dinner every you know whatever. The other thing, and I pitch this to bands as look this way. We're going to work nine hours a day. That's my advertised time. Of course, I'm working a little longer most of the time, but that's my advertised day is two hour break, eleven hour pillar to post with two hours in the middle for dinner and a. Um, Which is a nine hour workday, which to most people is cool. I learned I get more work done in nine hours than I do in 14 because I am fresh every day. The other advantage of having a a known break time in the middle is everybody is fresh twice a day. Everybody has an opportunity to check their messages at a known time. Everybody knows, yeah, I mean, if you come in at 11, what are you going to do? Eat lunch at 12? You're not going to waste time eat some breakfast, come in at 11, late afternoon, four or five. It was basically, I'm going to work from 11 until about 15 minutes before I got to go pick my kids up, and then I'll be back in two hours. If Little League runs long, we'll work late, or we'll make it up in a couple days. I will make it right to you. And I always do. And I had no complaints about this at all from anybody. Everybody understood. If it is crunch time, we'll do one of two things. Of course, there's days I made an exception. Every now and again, I'd call home and say, I'm working through. I've got, I got to get this done. It's the last day these guys got to go. And of course, Amy and my kids understood because it wasn't an everyday thing. The artists appreciate it because they knew I was making an exception for them. Or if you need me to work until five o'clock in the morning to make this right for you, I'm grateful you understand my situation with my family. But here's what I discovered, Matt, is in 2001, the, I think, truly great, Kelly Hogan came to Athens to make a record, and Kelly and I had known each other for a while. But she was living in Chicago she came to make a record for um, Bloodshot. And Kelly called me and said, "Okay, well, what are we going to do here?" And I said, "Okay, well, with people coming from out of town who have a reputation, you know, you want to be you want to be sensitive to their work needs, and their workflow, and their work schedule." And so I said, "Well, what I like to do is I like to work eleven to ten with a two hour dinner break, so I can go see my family late in the afternoon. But you know, if that's a problem for you, let me know, and we'll." And, you know, I'll work around whatever you need me to. And Kelly said, Barbie, you know, the re you doing stuff like that, that's the reason I came here. You're like a folk hero to every woman artist I know in the industry because you got off the road for your family and you take a dinner break to spend time with your children. Totally cool we expected that. And that's been most <laughs> people's reaction to it. <laughs> that's great. The, the I'll tell you, there's one other thing. The one ex- other exception I'll make to this, Matt, is that because I have all these young people that work for me and they're usually my assistants in sessions is that, There have been times where I've said, where I've just said, okay, I'm going to go to dinner, but uh, Drew Vandenberg, of course, very very accomplished engineer now, but there was a time where Drew was, I mean, a college kid assisting me. There was a time when Drew was a high school student who was my assistant, and it's just like, Drew's been here a couple of years. He knows how the stuff works. He's going to stay, and he'll stay here if you guys, while you rehearse, if you want to record something, he's plenty capable or Henry or any of the other people that have worked with me over the years. So there's other times where it's just like I got to go but if you're on a roll I'm going to leave somebody here with you that continue to, to keep work going. And so again I serve the artists I try to make it work for them and people are grateful and people are understanding my situation and so that's how I've been able to have a family and work it out over these years.
0: I love it. I love it. That's that's great to hear cuz I always, you know, I'm a family man myself so Right, right. I always curious to know. Well this has been really really great
1: talking Likewise. to you. I
0: really enjoyed it. your answers very, very interesting, very inspiring as well well, man, you take care you thank too, you Matt. so much, David. My pleasure, okay, thanks take care bye 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 There you have it, David Barbie here on the working class audio podcast, fantastic time talking with David, really good guy, but uh that's it, as you know, we are out of time, so we 're going to thank everybody want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams for their help on the show. Of course, I want to thank our sponsors. want to thank Gearsluts.com, Audio-Technica, Focal Monitors, and of course, Universal Audio. And as usual, want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate the time you take to listen. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware...